Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings podcast, The Interviews, where I have in-depth conversations about the paranormal, the spiritual, and the unexplained with experts in the field and with those who have had first-hand encounters. We're just about ready to start, so turn off your lights, sit back, and enjoy the ride. If you're a tarot enthusiast, then you know the name Robert M. Place. Place is considered to be one of the most knowledgeable tarot scholars and lecturers in the world. He's also an internationally known artist whose award-winning works in painting, sculpture, and jewelry have been displayed in galleries and museums in America, Europe, and Japan. His art has also graced the covers and pages of numerous books and publications, and his recreation of an historic 15th-century woodcut tarot is included in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Robert designed and illustrated no less than 20 award-winning tarot and oracle decks. Among them are the internationally acclaimed Alchemical Tarot, the Burning Serpent Oracle, the Tarot of the Saints, the Buddha Tarot, the Angel's Tarot, Vampire Tarot, the Tarot of the Sevenfold Mystery, and his newest deck, the Alchemical Tarot of Marseille. Robert is also the author of several books, including The Tarot, History, Symbolism, and Divination, which book list called the best book ever written on that deck of cards decorated with mysterious images called The Tarot. So in 2019, I interviewed Robert at his home in Saugerties, New York. I started by asking Robert to tell me about his start as an artist and how it eventually led to his designing tarot cards. The way I view tarot cards, tarot cards are first and foremost a work of art. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about who created tarot, like they think some Kabbalists or magicians invented the tarot card in the Middle Ages or something. There's no history of them before the 1400s, and they come from Renaissance Italy, and the people who first made them were artists. And artists in the Renaissance had a lot of understanding of mystical ideas and things that they incorporated into the cards. So it's natural for an artist to be drawn to this type of imagery. It gives you a vocabulary of mystical designs to work with. I'm an artist. I've always been an artist. I was born an artist. <laughs> I started saying I was an artist once I learned the word, you know, when I was a kid. From a very early age, I could draw true-to-life images. Children go through these stages where they draw what we call schematic drawings, where they, you know, everything's sort of symbolic. And then at a certain age, they start to try to draw representational art of what they see. And that usually happens 12 years old. But I started when I was like six or seven years old. At a much earlier age than most children would start drawing realistically. And I used to have a drawing pad, and then when my parents would visit places, I would look at all the knickknacks and things around people's houses, and I'd try to draw everything I saw. You know, I started copying, like I would copy figures from comic books. And I remember one time I made this drawing of Donald Duck, and my father like flipped out because I was such a little kid. And I, he goes, wow, he draws better than me. <laughs> <laughs> and so quickly my parents were telling everybody I was going to be an artist. And they were all proud of me because I was saying I was an artist. But I just knew it all along I was going to be an artist. In high school, I won every single award for art. I was in charge of big mural projects for the school. I was the, I was the school artist. I was always voted the most artistic. I won the National Scholastic Art Award, which was a national prize. You know, so I should have gone on to art school. But the guidance counselor said, well, you can't really make a living as an artist. So they geared me towards a teacher's college where I could be an art teacher. So I'd have teaching to fall back on 
when right. I fail as an artist, you know, which is about the worst decision I could have made. But luckily, the summer before I went to college, I went to the Art Students League and I took classes there, like life drawing and things like that. Even when I went to college, like I was as an art major, like you had to do drawing. But, you know, my teacher said, look, you draw so well already. You already passed. Just give me an A, just like you don't even have to do the drawing class. I taught art in grammar school for about five years. As a teacher in Union Beach, New Jersey, I got paid so badly as a beginning teacher that it was like I didn't really have enough money to last through the summer. So I had to find other things to do in the summer. So in the summer, I used to make artwork and, and try to sell it at outdoor shows. There was this big show, I think it was in Asbury Park, and it was at called the Maurice Podell Art Fest. It was a big deal. And I would get into it every summer and bring my paintings and start selling my paintings. Basically watercolors and drawings and things like that. And I did some enameling, which is glass fused to a copper base, and I would do little paintings with glass. And then I noticed that there was a whole section where they had crafts. And there was people making jewelry, and they seemed to be really selling <laughs> much more than I was. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, even though I had, like, collectors that were collecting my work, it was just getting me by through the summer. I mean, it really wasn't, didn't have much money. So I decided I was going to make jewelry because uh, I was already doing the enameling, so I just had to, like, set the enamels. And so I started teaching myself silver work, and then I worked up from uh, doing Limoges style to doing cloisonne enamels. And I became a jeweler, and I got into some really great craft shows and started making a living at that, and I quit teaching and became a full-time jeweler. Although making jewelry allowed Robert to make money during the summers when he wasn't teaching, it took away a lot of his time from his real love, drawing. He started drawing again, and then something extraordinary happened that would literally change the course of his life. He had a dream. So I started doing more and more drawings, and then I had this dream. This happened in 1982. I had a dream. It was in the summer. It's actually a dream about jewelry, because there was a woman I knew, and I saw her in the dream, and she was walking in the building, and I was following her in. As I walked into the living room of this building, and then she walked off into the next room, there was a telephone table in the living room with one of those black telephones with a handle on top and a dial. And back then, you know, when the phone rang, you used to answer it. So it rang, and, and when it rang in the dream, it was like it woke me up in this lucidity. It was like, wow, I didn't know somebody could call you in a dream, because it was totally interrupting the dream. It was right. about this other subject. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's this phone call in the middle of the dream. So I, I said, well, who could call you in a dream? So I picked it up, and, and this woman who was an operator, a dream operator, got on. She said she had a person-to-person call for Robert Place from England, and would I accept it? So I said, oh, yeah, sure, okay. So she put this woman on who was a secretary from a dream law firm, and she told me I had an inheritance coming from an ancestor in England, and that if I accept it, it's a very powerful tool. So I had to accept it before they wouldn't give it to me. But there's also a karmic debt that he had incurred that I would come with it. So, because like in the dream, I didn't even think about that. You might hesitate. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what was your attitude? Did you just accept this? In the I, just, I just said, oh, yeah, sure, okay. Because I guess in my dream self, I was very optimistic. And I said, well, well how do I know it? He said, oh, don't worry, you'll know it when you see it. It comes in a box from England. It's called the key. When I woke up in the morning, I was just like, boom, right? Bolt up in bed. I was looking at the foot of the bed, expecting the box to be there. That's how vivid the dream was. Within a day or so, my friend Scott came over, and of course he's a good friend, so he just came walking right in, and he was holding uh, the Wade Smith cards that somebody had just mailed to him, a friend his uh, gave them to him as a gift, and he wanted to show them off to me. And of course I knew what the cards were from college, because my girlfriend used to read them. But the thing is, when he walked through the door, my head turned of its own accord, and my eyes focused on the deck in his hand, and it just I knew it when I saw it. I said, oh, that's the inheritance. 
The trumps are called keys. The book's the key to Tarot. It was made, made in England, comes in a box. Right. Right. And it all makes sense and dream logic. And then, so we're looking through the cards, and I started telling him about the dream, and I said, you know, I have to get a deck like this. And then another day, so uh, my friend Ed came over, who was an astrologer, and he said uh, he had a Tarot of Marseille, and he never used it. And then he had this voice and said, told him that I was supposed to have it. So he gave me the Tarot of Marseille. And I said, wow. You know, so I told him about the dream. And then I said, wow, this is really good. So I started working with it, but I realized I had to get the Whitsmith also. Now, back then, living in New Jersey, I had to actually go into Manhattan to buy the Whitsmith deck. I think I was in Times Square, and I went and I found a store that had tarot decks, right? And then I said, I want to see the tarot decks, right? And the guy goes, you mean the tarot? <laughs> <laughs> you idiot, you don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> tarot. <laughs> so, yeah, let me see one of those tarots. <laughs> so, so then I said, okay, I want to buy this one, you know, and I took it home. And then I started playing with it, and then, like, seeing how the cards went together and all this, like, really great symbolism. It had a lot to do with a lot of things I had been studying about hermeticism and uh, Gnosticism and things like that. Alchemy, it, it seemed to connect all these subjects. And then I said, well, I should get some books on this. And I tried to get some books to read about it. And um, none of them made any sense. Because, you know, I was, besides being an artist, I was always a scholar and an art historian. I mean, I knew a tremendous amount about art history. And so the whole idea that these books used to say that the cards came from Egypt made no sense at all because I knew they didn't come from Egypt because they didn't have cards. Some of the com- comments that the occultists made, knowing that they didn't have cards in Egypt, would say, oh, well, originally they were uh, on gold tablets, <laughs> engraved with gold tablets in Egypt. But that didn't sound very real either because, you know, do you know any gold tablets from Egypt? That look- <laughs> okay, I mean, that wasn't a real thing. I think it was Ospensky who said that there was a secret temple and then that these were really painted on the columns in the temple and there were like uh, 22 columns and, and they were really these paintings, but no one's ever found this temple. So, like, how does he know this exists? Well, actually, Waite's book is pretty good. You know, it's, I mean, he's a terrible writer, but the thing is, he's a really good scholar. And he basically poo-poos all his ideas himself. Like, for instance, he says there is no satisfactory connection between the, uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the tarot cards. Any scholar would know that because everybody who worked to try to work it out worked it out differently. You know, they can't all be right. And then, and then basically he's, he was looking at, at it as, as a mystical text about an enlightenment, which is really what I think it is. So he's, he's very accurate, even though he didn't have as much historic information as I have to put it together. Robert started practicing using tarot cards as a method of divination, but further research led him to a realization that there was a connection between tarot cards and alchemy. So I started working with the cards, and then I was looking at a book where there was a picture of the Philosopher's Stone. Now, the thing is, the Philosopher's Stone is the whole point of the great work of alchemy, the magnum opus. And the Philosopher's Stone is a catalyst that changes lead into gold, but it's more than that. It can heal any illness. It prolongs life. It basically turns the alchemist into a sage. It transforms whatever it comes in contact with into its higher form. And the whole reason they thought lead could become gold is they believed that all metal was one thing and that lead was just basically the dirtiest, corrupted metal and gold was the purest. So there's seven metals in between that relate to the seven planets. Like copper's Venus and iron's Mars and quicksilver's Mercury and silver's the moon and Saturn would be lead and then tin is Jupiter. Basically the stone is, is called the stone, it's not a stone. It doesn't really exist as a physical thing. It's not material. It's made out of pure anima mundi, pure soul of the world. So how do you show a picture of something that doesn't exist? So you basically, you, they create these mandalas, 
like I was looking at this book and it had this mandala. And it was and the type of mandala is called a quincunx, where the most important thing, the quinta essentia, which is where the word quintessence comes from, is the essential fifth that's in the center. And then there's four objects in the four corners that represent the four elements, the four directions, the four seasons, the fourfold physical world. But then the thing in the center is what holds it together. That's the soul. So in this particular image, there was a cross, and then the cross divided the background. So there's images of the four elements in the four corners. And then on the center cross, there was a heart, and there was a wreath, a, a, a crown of thorns around it, and there was like drops of blood coming off the heart, but then there was a rose coming out. So mm-hmm. it, was, it almost looked like the sacred heart, but this is other optimistic thing with the rose, and then the cross was dividing the background into the four elements. So mm-hmm. it's like these other aspects that were beyond the Catholic icon. And I'm looking at it, and I say, well, gee, that's a whole lot like the world card, because the world card has these Catholic icon aspects where, the, where instead of the four elements, it has the four evangelists, which is what you would expect to see on the Catholic icon. And then there's a woman dancing in the center. And so the four you know, evangelist symbols divide into a cross. And then she's in the center of the cross. And then there's a, like a wreath around her instead of a crown of thorns. And she's dancing. And the dancing woman, I was thinking about how like ancient Egypt, the dancing figure was just one of the symbols of the soul. And how this heart's a symbol of the soul. And they're both symbols of the soul. It just opened up this portal in my mind. And it was like, oh, so if this is the culmination of the magnum opus, the philosopher's stone, and the world card is the culmination of the trumps, the Trumps could be talking about the magnum opus. And then it was like, boom, all these images came out. Like, oh, this is that car, this is that car. You know, right, right. like within seconds, it was like, oh, wow. It's like the whole Torah could be alchemical. And it's not like it's supposed to be some secret alchemical text. It's just that that was the language of the time. When I realized that, I went through Jung's psychology and alchemy and went through all the pictures and I'm writing notes next to them about what cards they were and started making charts. And that's when I started writing. And then my friend Kathy went to touch. She said, well, you know, you're an artist. Why don't you just create a tarot deck? I said, yeah, that's a good idea, because what am I doing with all this information, yeah. you know? So I started working on the deck, and I did, uh, the first card I did was, I drew a picture of the Siren of Philosophers, which was the, uh, the star, I turned into the star card. And see here, we see the Siren of Philosophers is a mermaid with two tails. She's holding her breast, and she's expressing two streams. One is blood, and one is milk. On the Tarot of Marseille, the star card, she's a nude woman, and she's pouring from two pictures, one on the water and one on the land, which are you know wet and dry, which are opposites, just mm-hmm. like the red and white blood and milk are opposites in alchemy. Do you know why you picked that? Like, why did that card that, come it just, I just resonated, you know. I did that, and I said, well, this really, I mean, I really liked it. So I started doing some more of the cards, and then I was in a health food store in New York, and then as I was reading more and more books on Gnosticism and Hermeticism and alchemy and all these things, and I'm, and I'm online by the, the cash register, and I see they had these magazines, and one was called Gnosis. And I was thinking, like, wow, I mean, I'm just learning about all these things, and, like, these Gnostics have their own magazine? I didn't know this. So I bought it, and I read it, and I was like, wow, this is a really good magazine. I said, you know, I really like this magazine. I'm going to get a subscription. And then this voice in the back of my head said, well, why don't you send them, send them that picture you did of the star card with the Siren of the Philosophers, because they're going to do an issue on the Tarot, and you'll be right on time. I, so I sent the picture in, with, in a write-up about how I'm working on this alchemical Tarot and about all my ideas. And then about a week later, Jay Kenny, who's the editor, called me up from San Francisco, and he said, this is what I'm replacing. Yeah, because we're not doing an issue on Tarot. Why do you think we're doing an issue on Tarot? <laughs> Because I was like, so sure that it was, they were doing this issue. You know? And he said, but you know, this arrived just on time. I'm doing an issue on the goddess. And there's an article about Sophia. And this is the perfect illustration to go with the article. And I want to put it in the magazine. And I want you to write a one-page article to go with it to explain the picture and your ideas. Because this is really intriguing. So that's the first place I was published. So finally, I'm writing something that's getting published in this magazine. And then Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who was a New Age author, she, she was one of the people who read the magazine. And she was writing a book on the mystical tarot. 
So she got in touch with me because she really liked the article in the picture, and she said she, she wanted me to include some pictures from my deck in her book on the mystical tarot and write a few pages for her book. So now I was published in a book. And then later she, she asked me to be a ghostwriter on some, another book and write about alchemy for her because I knew a lot more about alchemy than her. Now you still have the one card at this point? No, I, I actually had about ten. Like I, put, I think it was the devil and the temperance card I put in the book. Then Rosemary got in touch with me again. She said, well, how's it going? And I told her how slow it was because I'm really a jeweler and I don't have that much time to, to draw. And she said, well, you're not doing it right. You need to do a proposal and send it to a publisher and I'll give you an advance. And then the advance is supposed to free you up so you can work because you'll get money. And I said, wow, that sounds like a good idea. And she said, well, I would help you do that because you know, I'd really like to work on this project with you. So I said, okay, that sounds really good. So we put together the proposal. We sent it off to HarperCollins in London, the branch called Thorson's. And then I got a phone call from England saying that they wanted to do this deck. They were really excited about it. So I designed the cards in pen and ink. Now, this is an interesting thing. I don't always tell people about this, but I drew all the pictures in pen and ink, right? And then I was going to color them in gouache. Now, the trouble is gouache is opaque, but I wanted those flat colors. But if you pay, I did all this cross-hatching and shading, and I would have obliterated all the, you know, it's not like it can fit it in, like it really should right, do the lines right. on top of the colors. So I wasn't sure how to do this. Now, the thing was, years before this, remember I told you my friend Scott, who came over with the tarot cards? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Now, he, his, his brother is Keith Jarrett, the famous jazz musician, mm-hmm. who he'd always be talking about. And I met, all, I, met, you know, I met his mother, I met his other brothers, but never meet Keith because Keith is like the mysterious, famous figure that is always in the background somewhere. Nobody can ever approach him. So, one night I had a dream that I was invited to Keith's house. And then I saw the house. It looked like this old farmhouse with the porch in front of it, you know, like sort of colonial looking. And I went inside. And there were all these drawings, but they were my drawings. And they were hanging off the wall on transparent layers, just hanging in the air. And, and Keith was there and stuff. So then about a month or so later, Scott had moved away from where we lived in New Jersey, and he was living in Manhattan. But he had come back, and he was visiting Keith. And then he was sort of stuck there, and he needed me to pick him up. So he said, well, you've got to come over to Keith's house and pick me up. So he told me how to get there. And I drive up, and it looks ex- the building looked exactly like in the dream. Wow. You know, even though I didn't know what it looked like before that. Right. So I go in. Keith was working on, at that time, he was composing for orchestras. And he had this incredible sound system. So, I, so you can't even talk to him. Like, to come in, and there's just music hanging off the walls, like the drawings in, in my dream, right? But there was his music. And so I'm looking around in his collection. He had a lot of, like, folk art and stuff that I was really interested in. And he really liked that somebody was paying attention to the artwork. And then I was looking at all the awards he had. Got to say hi and talk to him a little bit, and that was it. I took Scott out, and we drove him back to Manhattan. But then I told Scott about the dream, but I said, but the weird thing was, in the dream, it wasn't his music, it was my drawings. So I, guess, I said, well, maybe that's just wishful thinking. Years later, I move here, I move up to New York. I'm doing these drawings for the alchemical tour. I got the contract, and, right, and I'm trying to figure out how to do the gouache. Now, Alan McKnight was this uh, commercial artist in Woodstock, and he said, well, what you have to do is you have to get film positives made of your drawings. So you basically have a clear film with the line drawings on the clear film, and then I take them, and I put that down on a light box and put paper over it and trace the basic areas, and then I just paint in the areas with gouache and then lay the lines on to make sure it lined up right. But see, my drawings ended up on this transparent film like in the dream. So what the dream was telling me is that someday I was going to do something just like Keith's music that was going to be world famous and be reproduced like the way his music was. And I was going to do these line drawings on transparent film, which I didn't even know this thing existed. Many people shy away from having their tarot cards read because they think that the cards actually predict the future. I asked Robert to tell me his feelings about this. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't think that's a very useful use of tarot cards. 
Obviously, for my dreams, I realize that dreams can predict the future. I have lots and lots of dreams that predict the future in great detail, like astonishing about things I didn't even know. But the thing is, I've never been able to do a tarot reading where I totally just predict the future the same way, because what the tarot card reading is always doing is talking about the present, and in the present, it knows where things are headed, and it's helping you make decisions about the present. So even people say that use the tarot cards to predict the future, they don't believe it's faded in that way. So it seems to me that my higher self if it wants me to know the future, it will tell me in a dream. Yeah. When I do tarot cards, it's helping me make decisions in the present. Right. Yeah, well, I always think of them as advice. It's never what's going to happen down the road because... Uh, well, I'm that would sort of be useless because now you'd be forcing it and then yeah. it's supposed to tell you bad things and it's faded and has to happen. Then what do you right. do? It's just, yeah, it's yeah. just worry all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why, I think that's why people are afraid of tarot readers because they think that's actually what happens. Suppose the death card comes oh, up. Oh, that death card. I always, uh, every time it comes up, I'm like, I love the death card. Well, it means something ended. That's yeah. all. <laughs> this is the end of something and the beginning of something you know, if, you were, if you were in jail and asking about when you're going to get out and you got the death card, that would be a good thing. Well, what's happening is, like, see, in the present, you, have, you know where things are headed. Like, you have an inkling. It's just like if you look at your car and you know which way it's dire which direction it's going, and you start the car, it's got to go in that direction first. <laughs> You know, unless you, I mean, you know, or you have to put it in reverse right away or do, you know, you, you have an idea what you need to do. And that's how your life is. It's like things are lining up to do something. So basically you're using intuitive information to see how things are stacking up and trying to make a better decision about what to do. Yeah. Intuition plays a big part. What, how do you feel about that when you... Yeah. I, and I think that one of the things is like, I think the biggest question people have is like, well, if you just shuffle the cards randomly, then how come they come out accurately? I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense mm -hmm. to your logical mind. But the thing is, what I th see, what I've learned is that your unconscious is really in control all the time. It's like we, our conscious mind thinks it's in control, but it really isn't. It's just going along for the ride. And, and so many of the experiences I had with the Torah have taught me that the unconscious is really in control. So when you're shuffling the cards, you are unconsciously reordering them. And, then, and that's why they come out. And that's the best theory I have. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody really knows, but right. that's the theory I have, that you're unconsciously reordering the cards, and that's why it works. But mm -hmm. I don't know, but like I said, I don't always do it that way. Sometimes I just tell people, pick the cards you like, put them together. I mean, I have people, like in my classes, I'll say, okay, lay out the cards in the, three different, the seven different patterns with the three cards. Then I'll go around and say, you know, you just gave away stuff about yourself, even though you consciously put these cards out. And they go and say, this says this and that. And go, yeah, that's me. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, you, yeah. can't, you can't help. It's sort of like, uh, it's sort of like a handwriting analysis. Like mm -hmm. you, you, when you write, you're giving yourself away. Right. Anything you do, you give yourself away because your unconscious is putting it out there. Yeah, yeah. I always think that if you ask a question, you will get an answer. You're asking a question of the universe, or you're asking a question, so you're going to get an answer. Or your, in, your inner wisdom. Or right. Well, well there's some meditations like that. Like, like there's meditations yeah. where you ask a question and you, you close your eyes and wait to hear an answer. I mean, yeah. that's sort of like doing tarot. I want to talk about your new deck. Which um, which one? The uh, the uh, magnum opus. Yeah, the magnum opus. Okay, the the tarot of the alchemical magnum opus. It's a beautiful, beautiful deck. Highly recommend it. Tell us about what that deck is about because it's really related to your first alchemical tarot deck. Yeah, basically what I was doing is I started off wanting to design a deck that could be reproduced as as like uh, like wood blocks or even, or even letterpress printing where it would be simplified so there's only black, white, blue and red on a uh, an off-white paper color so the white would stand out. So you just have four plates, you know, you know, and they're just solid. There's no half tones. It's the basic printing technique. And I want to simplify the images. I'm looking at the alchemical images and I say, well, what is the essence of each of these images? What, what's the most essential thing of that? Like, like, 
when I get to the Empress, she's the white queen. So what's the white queen? So I show the queen's face with the crown, and she's the white queen. And then when I get to the king, he's the, the red king. And then uh, what, what, what's, what's essential about the death card? And I show, that, well, there's a skull, and then there's the raven, because you're in the Negretto. So I have a raven on the skull. See, so it's just simplifying instead of having a whole skeleton with a raven on his right. shoulder and holding an arrow and all these things like right. in the alchemical tarot. That's just down to the skull yeah, with well, a raven. Well, it's like alchemy. I mean, it's, it is, yeah, you're, you know. You're distilling it. Yeah, yeah, distilled down to the simplest form. Also, the thing is, there's been a rebirth of interest in oracle cards. Of course, I had just designed a Lunarmon deck based on Japanese art called Anakui Lunarmon. And in that, again, I, there's no border to the cards. There's just an image there. So I wanted to have that same sort of iconic, simplified image without a border around it, you know, whether it's floating in the space. So it's very precise about what it's saying. And I wanted to make a tarot deck like that. So I said, oh, I'm going to redo the tarot, the alchemical tarot, as this kind of iconic deck. And I gave it the same proportions as the Ukiyo-e. And then I gave them gold edges. I have some antique decks in my collection, and some of them have this two-part box where it's almost like a slipcase. Like you have a box with the cards in it, and then a box that slips over it. And, and I said, well, I, want a, I want a box like that. You know, a nice heavy cardboard and it's cloth covered. So it's almost yeah. like a cloth covered book, like a hard covered book. And then I wanted gold edges on the cards, like I see on some antique decks. So I took pictures of this, and see, now I'm my own publisher, so I can do all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I sent it to my printer, and I said, can you do this deck? And then he sent it off to uh, China, and they said, yeah, we can do this. The Sevenfold Mystery is getting down, and, and like I'm running out of them. Oh, really? Yeah, so maybe I should start thinking about doing a new edition. In the that colors in that deck are gorgeous, those colors. See, that one I was looking at, like, the art, you know, Burne Jones' artwork, the pre-Raphaelite art from the mm-hmm. from 1800s in England. And I realized how connected that was to the Renaissance. This is keeping in the same tradition. I want to do a deck like this. Yeah, I mean, I love all your decks, but that's another one that I find myself, you know, going to all the time, mostly for the colors. I mean, you've got the symbolism and everything's there in the cards. They're beautiful, but the colors are really striking in that deck. They're just stunning. What future projects do you have coming up? Well, that's a good question. Sneak sneak preview. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of, well, I'm, I'm up in the air. Like right now, I've been reading Jocelyn Godwin's books the uh, Renaissance Dream of Antiquity. I, I forgot the exact title, but it's like it's a, you know, he, he, he's really great the way he goes into symbolism of what they recreate, what they were actually creating in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to go back to the source and like reread these books. And mm-hmm. like, I was thinking maybe I want to do my own version of the Tarot Marseille, or or maybe I just want to do something spinning off on that. I mean, it, it might take on a life of its own. Earlier this year, Robert completed the Tarot of the Marseille, which is now available on his website, robertmplacetarot.com. I'd like to thank Robert for the interview and thank you for joining us today. Please visit Robert Place's website for an amazing selection of beautifully designed tarot cards, oracle cards, and books. Again, the address is robertmplacetarot.com.